0: to our entire choir now participating in that worship lord what a beautiful reminder of a god who loves us a god who uh, we're enthralled with who pulls from us from our souls joy and glory and worship oh that's that's a changed life lord we can't just manufacture that so we thank you that we were able to sing to you today and just bless your name in song as we sang together in unison of your truth, Lord. Lord, we thank you for our missions around the world. So many of them are singing the same songs, the same truth, Lord. And we're so grateful for those men and women who serve you so faithfully, Lord. May we always be reminded of them. Never forget they're doing something that you've called them to do that you did not call us to do. But Lord, we have a part. We give. Uh, we pray. We we find ways to encourage them, Lord. So. We think of our missionaries around the world, and we also think of those who can't be here today. Lord, some are sick. There's others going through procedures. Others are recovering. Um, some are really struggling this, this morning, Lord, and so we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them. We know there's family members who are brokenhearted over some of the things that are going on in their own families, Lord. We pray that you would encourage them, strengthen them, cause them to be A great example for your glory, Lord, and to offer the good news to those who don't know you. Lord, we thank you for this time now. We want your word to uh, strengthen us, encourage us, rebuke us, challenge us, Lord. We want all of the above so that we'll know you and be more like your son. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we encourage you to take them and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will be in verses 20 through 28 this morning, and then we'll end with the Lord's table. Uh, as we celebrate uh, our Lord and Savior today. I want to begin from a way of review, just jump right into our first point. I was in the middle of this last week, and so I want to go to that again and work my way back into the next few points. We said we are living between two resurrections. That would be the first point on your notes. We're living between two resurrections. Notice Paul turns from this very negative, a good spiritually negative approach of these seven things that, that cannot be true, that will not happen if Jesus Christ is not resurrected. He's been working through that from 12 through 19. But in verse 20, he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He, Jesus, is the firstfruits of all those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus was the first resurrection, right? He is the, the guarantee... He is our, our, our one who guarantees our resurrection because he came out of the grave. So all those who die, particularly in this verse, all those who have died before the return of Christ, he guarantees your bodily resurrection. And so we live in this amazing time, don't we? We live between two resurrections, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of all of God's children. We live in a time of great hope. I love that. There's great hope. And and, and death is hard. We talked about this last week. We've had some loved ones go to be with the Lord here recently. But yet as a believer, we have great hope. We know that there's no separation. There's no condemnation and there's no separation. So from death, there is an instantaneous going to be with the Lord. In In a blink, you are with the Lord. That's the way the Bible teaches it. And, and so there's no separation. You cannot be separated from the Lord. He, he tells us that where I am, you will, be, you will be also. And so there's this constant understanding of no soul sleep. There is this, this understanding that when we die, um, at that moment's notice, our spirit is immediately with the Lord and he will resurrect our bodies in time and give us new bodies and outfit them for eternity. Now, if you die before the return of Christ, Absent from the body is present with the Lord, right? That's what we, we know the Bible teaches that. And the Bible reminds us that it's far better off. You're far better off to be with the Lord. And I know it's hard <laughs> when we lose loved ones. It's, that's difficult. There was a funeral here yesterday of a, a local paramedic who died. And we hosted that funeral. Pastor Bobby taught it and uh, preached it. And, and it's hard. And, and that was a lot of people who didn't know Jesus Christ. And, and yeah, yeah, we, we were full of hope, Right? We know it's far better to be with the Lord. So that means no purgatory, no holding place, no waiting rooms, no grave sleep. None of that. That would, that would make God's word untrue. You're immediately with the Lord. Well, Corinth was struggling with this, right? They had a lot of influence coming in on them Greek philosophers, Roman philosophers, even the Sadducees had had affected the Jews in their view. And this agnostic type of thinking had made its way into the church. They would say that, that, um, you know, spirit is good, your spirit, your soul is good, but matter, physical matter is evil. And how could that, how could God resurrect that? And that became a persuasive teaching that was in the early church But Paul was making the bodily resurrection a critical part of the gospel. He wants that taught, he wants that understood. And so he starts the whole chapter off, working through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, proving that his body is person. He was seen by so many to show that just like Christ was raised, so you will be raised as well. And that's why he comes to this great question in verse 12. How do some among you teach there's no resurrection? He's flabbergasted. If God did this for his son... And you're in his son. Why would he not do it for you? And what kind of thinking have you got there? And so he is admonishing them. And, of course, he goes down through those seven negatives. Now, verse 20 again. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. You believe it. You stand on it. You received it. That's how he went through those first four verses. You know it. And it brought you to salvation. And so the resurrection is the capstone of the gospel. It's everything we believe. It pulls it all together. And then he says the first fruits of those who sleep. And this is where we kind of started to wind up last week. Those who are asleep means to die or pass away. term sleep here is not for the soul. It's just a tender way Paul speaks about our loved ones who die before the return of Christ. It's very tender. I, I love the term and, and learn to love it more. But it's referring to the body, not the soul. Your soul doesn't sleep. Your body sleeps. Your soul doesn't get tired and needs to take a nap. I know sometimes we say, man, my soul is just worn out. <laughs> well, yeah, we can struggle with sin and the effects of sin around us. But it's your body that's sleeping, not your soul. Because you are, you, you, when you die in this life, you're either you're instantaneously brought into the presence of the Lord. Or you're instantaneously brought into a place, a holding place for Judgment. It's one or the other, right? There is no other place. And so our bodies are anticipating the resurrection. That's how God made us. And you can see it when people are are getting ready to pass away and their bodies are are slipping away just physically. You can just see they're not the same person they were. Those bodies are anticipating that resurrection that Christ will give them. Now, Christ's bodily resurrection isn't an isolated event. I think this is what Paul wants us to know. That's not an isolated event. That is the foreshadowing of another great resurrection, and that's the resurrection of all the first fruit that comes from his work, right? And so it was the first fruit that falls asleep. That's them he's talking about. Meaning Christ's fruitful bodily resurrection is a promise of another great harvest of fruitful bodily resurrection, because he is the first fruits, he promises that there is a great harvest coming, that's you and me. If we pass away before the Lord's return. And so I love this type of thinking. First fruits was just a great Old Testament term. They would bring that. We looked at some passages I think briefly last week in Exodus and Numbers. They would bring the first fruits of their crops and they would offer that to God. They gave him the first, the best of what came in, knowing that. That's God's promise that there's a bunch of fruit coming behind it. Here's here's 10% of the harvest that first came in, Lord. You get the first and you get the best because I know you're bringing the rest. That's the idea here. The Lord Jesus Christ is the first fruit of that. And God wants that first fruit. He wants the first and the best, and that's why Jesus Christ is the first fruit, right? That's why he's first called that. He's the best. He's the highest of quality. But he assures us, think about this, he assures us that there is more fruit to come. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a promise of our resurrection. Promise of a great harvest. Promise of quality harvest. A guaranteed the reality and the quality of ours. I was thinking again of verse, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. There Paul tells the believers, he says, we eagerly wait for a Savior And if there's any question about who that Savior is, the Bible says, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only Savior. But then he says this, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory. And he does this by the exertion of his power. Now, think about this. You go, well, I don't know if I want this thing up there. Well, I don't want this thing up there either. (laughs) But there's some key words in that verse. He will transform. And it'll be like his. Okay, now we're talking about something different. Not a 58-year-old decaying thing that uh, I'm trying to live in every day, right? And he does it by his exertion of his power. Well, our Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians 1, Romans 1, Hebrews 1, tells us he spoke creation into existence. That's, That's power, right? I mean, I like a ham sandwich, ham sandwich, nothing. I mean, that's power, isn't it? It's power to transform bodies that are decaying in the, in the ground. He transforms those ones destroyed in wars and, and, and burned by uh, rebel re- religious people, whatever it may be. he has the power to bring it about. Well, this is an amazing verse. Don't worry about this thing you have. He's going to make it new like his, and he has the power to do it. There's another thing I thought thought much about this this week. He cares about the body he gave you because he made you unique. You're not me. I'm not you. So he's going to resurrect your body by his power so that it fits your soul the way he made you, your personality, your uniqueness. He cares greatly about that. And I think that's one of the things we see when we see Mount of Transfiguration. There's um, uh, Moses and Elijah. Not, well, those are a couple old guys. We don't know who they are. No, those unique men, uniquely designed by God, uniquely gifted, uniquely recognizable. He uniquely resurrects people, and that's what he's going to do. And it's interesting. Their bodies are not resurrected yet, but they're very identified because that's who they are. Your soul is who you are. And so you go to be with the Lord, your soul is who you are. And all those in heaven that are before us right now, they're all having a great time because they know each other. They recognize each other. But God's going to give them back their bodies. The uniqueness that God made them, it's personal. And I think it's just the kindness of God to make us back. Oh, Scott, I really don't want anything like this. I really like to be that person. No, no. Be careful. God made you the way he made you. That was his choice. He he does that. And boy, when he transforms you to be like his son, oh, that's going to be good. That's going to be great, right? So we love those things. There was others resurrected by the power of Christ in, in his life on this earth, right? But they all died again. They all died again. And somebody asked me not too long ago, well, where were their souls while Lazarus was in the grave there for a few days, right? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. But I don't doubt that they got a glimpse of what's coming. I, if I was laughing, I was like, no, 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 please don't send me back. Oh. <laughs> There's Jesus. <laughs> they died again. So this is even greater than that. Far greater than that when we talk about the bodily resurrection of the saints. Christ's resurrection is for eternity. Theirs was just for a momentary life to finish out. Ours will be for eternity. And everything starts with the Redeemer's resurrection. Everything is flowing from the Redeemer's resurrection. So everything we want to know about resurrection, we look to the Redeemer. The Bible tells us a lot about it. Romans chapter 6, verse 9 says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, listen to this, is never to die again. Jesus will never die again. Now, he is the first fruits. We're following him. So that means what? We will never die again, Right? Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says he is also, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So one of the things we learn about the Redeemer is God raised him from the dead and gave him first place protos of everything, right? He's ruler and king. This is why Jesus is the head of River Bend Community Church. None, not elders, not membership, none of those things. He is the head. Revelations chapter 1, verse 5 through 6, Jesus Christ, listen to this, is the faithful witness. Isn't that interesting? He is the witness that God transforms and brings people back from the dead. It's him. He is the witness to that, the firstborn from the dead. You drop down a little farther in Revelations 1, you get to 17 and 18. He says, Jesus, I am, Jesus says this, I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's who our Lord is. See, it all starts with Him. Now, this word firstborn that we find in verse 20 here is just uh, a fascinating word. Prototokos is the the Greek word. It, It often not only refers to first place, but often to a son who is the first to inherit all that the father has. And so when Jesus returns and that great commissions, he gathers his men, he says, Tell them we're going to meet me in Galilee. He gets there, and the first thing he says to them is, All authority has been given to me in where? Heaven and earth. Well, that takes up everything. <laughs> there is nowhere else. He's got authority over all things. And that's what the Lord does. He's firstborn. He's the right hand of the Father. God has given him all authority. Paul says it this way. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name, which is a name above every name. So we see in verse 20, Jesus is the premier one, right? He's raised bodily from the dead. His resurrection is everlasting, never to die again. Thus, the nature of the resurrection... We are a product of the first fruits, and so we too will be raised from the dead. And so right now, though, we wait. We're between resurrections, aren't we? And what a beautiful time that is to trust in the Lord and watch him gather his people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation in between these resurrections. Second thought this morning, a powerful result of Christ's bodily resurrection. In order to have a a better understanding of this impactful, powerful uh, bodily resurrection, Paul is going to give a clear analogy here. And so I, I think it's the Spirit anticipating questions, in a sense, leading Paul, that someone might say, well, how can one man's bodily resurrection guarantee the resurrection of all believers? That he's, the, the Spirit's anticipating somebody thinking that way. How can this one man guarantee that all believers will be resurrected? It's a good question, isn't it? most likely would have come from Corinth or from Rome even. Well, Paul teaches that it goes all the way back to Adam, right? And all mankind fell. When Adam fell, the wages of sin, his sin, became the wages of our sin. So Adam, and what, what Paul's going to do here, I'll read the verse in here in a moment, he's going to show that he was a first fruit too. Problem was, he was a really bad first fruit. <laughs> Pretty stinky, awful, deadly first fruit. That's what he was. And he's going to show that one bite of that corrupted thinking and mindset and first fruit plunged the entire human race. And this is what we refer to as the a theological term we call federal headship. And that means when Adam died in sin, we died with him, right? We, when, we, when he sinned, we sinned with him. We were in Adam in a sense, it's a federal headship that we realize that, and the Corinthians would have believed that. They would have understood that part of it. What they would have struggled with was in trying to get their heads around was understanding their spiritual position in Christ, and understand that if He was raised bodily, that they too were raised. Now, look what He does, verse twenty-one: "For since a man came, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead." Now, notice. Paul is making this direct connection between the death of Adam and the death of all humanity, right? He's very clear there. It says, for since by a man came death, right? We're going to look at the passage. I know you're thinking about Romans 5. Hold on a second. But there's a direct connection between the life of Christ, his bodily resurrection, and the bodily resurrection of all humanity, right? He's going to raise all humanity here. So, So remember, the key is bodily resurrection. And that... The agnostics and the uh, Sagittarians and uh, the Sadducee followers—they would have just—they would have had such a difficult time getting their mind around this. And I thought about this this week. That s- uh, mysticism that came from that first century is still with us. In fact, most cultures do not believe that there is a bodily afterlife. Taking point, our own Native Americans, uh, out west, our ranch was really close to. Um, a lot of resurrections. Gina and I did a lot of ministries on there. In fact, I, I did a lot of ministries. It was a Very, very difficult place. I often didn't let my children go on there at first. Um, a lot of demonic behavior. This very difficult place. But when you spend time with them, they all believe in a spiritual afterlife, right? You all go in your spirit to the hunting grounds. See, so see, this is persuasive all through. The Jews would see him and say, "Well, we saw his ghost." There was a there was this persuasive view that there was no bodily afterlife. The only one who's teaching that is the scriptures. Star Wars doesn't even teach it. You're just this little floaty guy out there with the short frog guy. Right? Isn't that true? I've seen the movies. Not the Bible. The Bible teaches that God resurrects us. Now, this federal headship is important. Look at Romans chapter 5. I said frog guy because I can't remember his name. I'm sure somebody will tell me afterwards. Look at verse 12. You think Corinth's the only one dealing with this? No, they're all dealing with it. All the churches are trying to get their mind around sin and resurrection and forgiveness and all of these things are trying to understand this and so Paul writes to the Romans verse 12 therefore just as one man sin entered the world who's that one man Adam thank you and death through sin so what followed sin into that world was death right on its heels because the wages of sin is death there it is Right, and so death spread to all men. Now that all is important. You should circle in your Bible. That's not some, or maybe people who are raised with pastors as their hus- as their as their uh, fathers, or something like that. Or you're, or you're in the spiritual elite club, or something like that. It passed to all people. That little child you have in your hand, that little one sitting next to you, those ones in the nursery. Doesn't matter where they are born. Sinners, just like you and I. David says we go astray from birth. David says he was conceived in sin, not, not the wickedness of conception, but the wickedness that man is conceived in sin. He is a sinner from the beginning. And so death spread to all men because what? All sinned. So fun to kind of watch grandchildren now. They learn the word no really fast. Yes, you got to work on, please, all those type of things. And, and, the, and the parents are working on those things, but it's just innate to them. It didn't take them very long, and they're trying to figure out how they can get away with something. See, it's just innate to us, right? We're sinners from the beginning. But look at verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, the law of God writes on man's hearts, chapter, chapter 2, verse 15. And so the law of God comes, and man goes, this is wrong. So Cain in the garden, before the law of Moses is ever there, <laughs> the, the Lord comes, Yahweh comes and says, what have you done? Have you seen your brother? What am I, my brother's keeper? liar, you killed him. And God knows it. See, right from the beginning, uh, Adam and Eve, sin, what do they do? Hey, God, we did this. No, we go hide and try to make swimsuits out of fig leaves. I mean, it's just a mess, right? You know, but the law comes along. The law of God written on our hearts either by letter or on our hearts teaches us we're wrong. Why do people rape, pillage, and kill at night, right? They think no one sees them. That's their heart, that's the heart of man. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner from birth. If you're struggling here and think you're good and you maybe came to church and say so you can go to heaven, that's not how you're gonna get there. You're a sinner and your sins have to be judged before God, or they're judged on Jesus Christ, one of the two. That's what happens. Now look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to, to Moses. You think, well, aren't those guys they didn't have the they didn't have the Pentateuch, were they okay? No, death reigned from Adam to Moses. That means even before the law was given, before the Pentateuch was written, they're just as guilty as all the rest because God writes it on their heart. Now notice he goes on. Even over those who have not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. You go, well, I wasn't there. I didn't eat the fruit. Who, who is a type of him who was to come. That's, that's going to be the Lord Jesus eventually. But we all sinned in Adam. But look at verse 15. Got to love the conjunctions. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression the one, uh, the many died, by the one many died, much more. This is, uh, our English is so poor uh, in getting this word across. This is like, you can't believe how much better, is the idea of the Greek word here. Did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And you can read the rest of this text, but what it's teaching us is federal headship. Adam sinned, I sinned in Adam. I'm doomed, I'm headed for hell. Lord Jesus comes, he undoes all of that. He becomes the sacrifice, the perfect atonement, stands in our way. He appeases the Father's wrath. He's the propitiation for our sins. He declares us justified by faith in him. He gives us his righteousness, and now I am free by the free gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing, right? And so this is what he's going back to. This is what he's helping us understand. So just as Adam produced very, very bad first fruit, so Christ produces very, very good fruit. And we are his good fruit. First, salvifically, he dies and grants us his righteousness. He raises from the dead with a promise to raise you from the dead bodily. What a beautiful thing. Look, bad fruit led to more bad fruit. Read the Bible. Go to Genesis five. Start there. Well, we'll start in one, but eventually we'll get to five. Five is this guy dies. He begat, he begat somebody. He dies. He he begat something. He dies. He begat somebody. He dies. He begat somebody. He dies. Dies. Die. 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 All the way down through the text. People get all well. You Christians, you your Bible's just full of murder and rape and all that. Yeah, it is. Because that's who we are. And there's a clear teaching in the Scriptures that man is wretched left to himself. And we need a Savior. So what do you want to talk about? Do well, you want to go to David? We'll go look at his, his rape, and not his rape, but his, his adultery and his murder. You want to go look at that? We'll, we'll talk about it. I have no problem. If you want to attack the Bible, let's go look at that passage and let's understand what it says. And let's see how well you do when we put you up against God's Word, His perfect Word. So we love these truths because they teach us that, yes, Adam produced very bad fruit. But Christ, the first fruit, was better, right? More perfect. And, and, and our Lord is perfectly bodily resurrected, promising this great harvest. Now look at verse 22, this, back in chapter 15. Um, this is a great just summation, a real perfect, simplistic submission. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive Period. I don't know how you fight that. Well, I just think I'm going to be a sparkly. No. If you're in Christ, you'll be made alive. You're not some sparkly floating around up there. You're the body that God's going to resurrect, just like his son. You're going to be the first fruit of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, an obvious question that might been asked, that if all mankind sinned in Adam, then... Everyone will be resurrected in Christ. They might ask that. Verse 22. Now, there's a key preposition there. Notice it says, in Christ. Look for prepositional phrases. They mean positioning, right? And and yes, all people are in Adam and all sin. That's clear in the text. But not all people are in Christ. Now, that's a big difference. There is going to be resurrections. There's two resurrections. There's a resurrection to judgment. There's a resurrection to eternal life with Christ. But the only ones that are resurrected into eternal life with Christ are those who are in Christ, placed in him. That's that spiritual position where the Father declares us righteous through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he puts us in his son, never ever to be lost. So every time the Father looks at us, he only looks at us in his son forever. That's who he's talking about here. That's the difference in the resurrections. The others will go to judgment. Now I can show you this because Jesus speaks about it. He's teaching probably from Daniel chapter uh, Daniel chapter twelve verse two, but but Jesus says it in such a marvelous way. John chapter five verse twenty nine. I want you to see this. I want you to get your finger on this because this is a very important word. John chapter five verse twenty nine, I believe. John chapter 5 is probably one of the most profound, deepest chapters in all of Jesus' instructions. I invite you to spend time studying it and walk away and you'll understand the quality and the essence and nature shared with God that Jesus has. But this one, he is talking about the two resurrections. In verse 28, it says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear my voice. Now, that's important. All. I love circling alls because it makes me really think about what he's talking about here. Verse 29, and will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection. You know what that good deed is? (laughs) They're not works. And the word deeds is probably um, uh, italized, italized, italized in your Bible. That's the word. Um, It tells you that word's not in there. The good is referring to faith in Christ alone. There's there's those, right? But then there's another group here. Notice this. In those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. Now, uh, Paul in his defense um, in Rome in Acts 25 brings the exact same teaching up. And he he used it to really get the Sadducees all fired up against the Pharisees because they were about ready to kill him. And so he throws this little ditty in there about the resurrection. And boy, they start fighting. It's a really fun passage to read. Uh, but, but, But he's using it to show there's two resurrections in that aspect. The resurrection to those who will spend eternity with Christ and a resurrection to those who will spend eternity being judged forever. And so what an amazing statement. So because God bodily raise the Redeemer, here's the point, he promises to raise bodily all who put their faith in Christ, and that's great news. Now, third thought, and maybe my longest, so I'm going to have to really move here. The doctrine of our Lord's return. Boy, do we get into some fascinating uh, verses here. Look at verse 23 with me. But each in his own order, important phrase there, Christ the first fruit after those who are Christ at his coming, but each in his own order. The resurrection order does not take place all at once, right? Uh, There's a divine order to how God brings both his son back to himself and all who believe and then the end, right? And so this word order, tagma, is a the Greek word, it is originated in military. There was military things that had to be done. There was a checklist of things that had to happen in order to do whatever they were doing. So that's the idea of the word. There's an order here. So Paul's first order, the first order of business is to separate Christ from mankind. And he did that in verse 21, right? Death came by man, but a greater man came and the resurrection of the dead comes from it. So he separates Christ from man because he's greater Than the first Adam. Now, if Christ isn't raised, no one's raised, is the teaching here. So the next phrase is extremely important. He says, After that, those who are Christ. I love that phrase. I got it all marked up in my Bible. After that, Those who are Christ. He is showing, he is denoting ownership. He's marking the second order. The second order of events is for those who belong to Christ, those who are bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 7, 23. There's those who are redeemed, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, with precious blood. It's those that are being redeemed. And so the timing of this second step, the second order, notice, is at his coming. Now, doubtless, refers to the return of Christ, the second advent of him coming to earth. Now, there's this word, coming, at his coming. Uh, Parasua is the word there. Uh, Parasia. Parasia. Uh, it, it is a word that um, became very important to uh, the early church. To the general people, it just meant presence or coming. But the early church connected it to the return of Christ. And so when... Uh, Parosua was used at any time they thought of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The word got used later of royalty coming to town. Um, uh, But the early church said this is the supreme royalty coming back to the earth. And so that's how they spoke of it. And so this marks that that second great order is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at verse 24 with me. Then comes the end. Hmm. When he hands... Over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Now it's important to remember that throughout this passage, I want you to get this down that Paul has believers in mind here. He's talking to the believers, he is not dealing with Uh, uh, all the fate of the wicked, right? And he's not dealing with every eschatological event that's going to happen in the return of Christ. He is dealing with believers. He wants them to understand. Remember, the goal is worship. They have been a church that has moved away from worship. He's trying to bring them back. And so he's using the bodily resurrection of the believer to return them to worshiping the Lord. So not all the events are in this one passage, though there are some that like to try to draw that to. Now, that brings us to what we call the third order, or the third order events that Paul uses here to encourage the believers in Corinth. He says, then comes the end. Now, because this is not an extensive instruction on eschatology here, the word then is not necessarily meaning Immediate. Now, when you study this, and there's a lot of work that has to go, and this is why there's different views, and and I have dear brothers that we have some different views on this uh, as we work through this. But for me, as I look at this syntactical structure of it, it indicates that there that the follow that follows takes place. What's following here is kind of an un, unspecified time. It doesn't doesn't really show us that that word little word then, and then he uses the word when, and it has a purpositive meaning to it, but again, we don't, we're not told when these things happen. But then he uses the word telos. This is the word end, or the aim of all things. And Paul is pointing the Corinth church, these Corinth Christians, to the consummation of all things, the climax of everything. So there's a lot of eschatological events that could happen, uh, that we believe happen. There's physical aspects, there's spiritual aspects that all happen during eschatology, the, the doctrine of end times. But he wants now to run them right to the end. First Christ is raised, he comes back, and now there's this end of all times. And of course there's things that happen in between here, right, as we all know. Now he uses a word here, um, he says when, when he, now this is important, when he hands over the kingdom to the god and father again the word when here's another one it uses is is a time that's unknown but then he uses this this word basileia um we translate it kingdom but it, it's it's a dynamic word it's it takes in something more when we think of kingdom we, we you know maybe we think of england right now and there's a new king i think like I saw something about that. Um, we think kind of physical and, and isolated. This word is grandiose. And you see it in this text when he starts to say he hands over all things. This kingdom of God is, is universal. It's spiritual. It's physical. It takes in all of those things Is the idea here. And so Paul flushes this statement out by describing that Jesus Christ will have the last full and complete authority. This is what he's telling us, right? All things, all people. And then and only then will he deliver up all and hand his authority and his rule to his father. That's what Paul's saying. Now, when Christ returns to this earth, he will reign in majesty, right? All his enemies who oppose him will be put under his feet in submission. And this is why Paul speaks that Christ will begin to to, to bring to an end to all rule, all authority, and all power. All rule, all authority, all power is a collection of terms, right? He's collecting this this view. He's going to put them away. And, and, and what he's saying is there's no governing power that will be able to resist the strength of the king of kings. And he'll put them under his feet. He uses the word, abolish. Abolish. Uh, We have so many English words to try to express this one Greek word. It means to put down, to render null and void. Um, It's used of something that's inoperable, ineffective, powerless to do away with, to bring to an end, to cease or pass away. That's what he's saying. He's going to abolish all their power. Now Paul does not speak of Christ slaying his enemies, right, with his breath. We know the Bible talks about that. That's not in this text because I think what he's doing here is he wants the Corinth church to understand that Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection, he has the power and he has the authority and he has the rule to put to, get put to end all those who oppose him. He certainly has the rule, a power and rule to resurrect your body. He's using this metaphorically to help you understand that you, he, he can, he's going to put an end to all that. He can take care of you. He's going to do these things. Now, it says when he abolishes all rule, all authority, and all power. And I think it's clear that there um, is, is the authority that God gives Christ here on earth and, and throughout his entire universal kingdom is unmatched. I, and when I read this and studied this this week, I thought, Lord, you are so glorious. And, and here you are. You allow, you allow the world to do what it does. You, 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 you are still in full control. You put kings in and princesses and presidents and you, you let them do what they do. But you still have all rule and all power. And it makes us Christians trust you in these difficult times. And this reminds us that he has the pulse of what's going on and he will put an end to this someday. Now, it's clear there's one more event, one more order that the Bible talks about. Look at 25 and 26. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. What a a statement. I I love the word must. I'm a or guy. I I love studying the Bible. I love my languages because there's little words like that. You kind of just may breeze through that. But when you're studying this to understand the the intensity of this passage, there's little words like must. It it carries the idea of absolutely divinely necessary. It's, It's divinely necessary that he does this. So this word speaks of the determination of Christ that he's going to put away any uncertainties that his promises will be fulfilled. Oh, you, Cor- you Corinth guys, you've gotten to your agnostic thinking. You're, you're maybe questioning whether you're going to be bodily raised. Let me tell you this. He's going to crush all of his enemies, and then there's one more he's going to crush, and that's death. Think he can raise your body from the dirt? He made Adam from the dirt. He not a problem with him. Now, when Satan and his forces in this world and hell itself, look, seems to be running the world like it does today, this statement is for your mind. This statement is to remind you, Christian, that the Lord Jesus Christ is in control. Nobody gets away with nothing. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is going to come crush this. And he reminds us, and even death, because some of us have experienced death here lately, friends and loved ones and people have gone on to be the Lord. It's hard. It's hard to watch somebody pass from this life and maybe their body has been riddled with cancer or whatever it may be. It's very difficult to do that. This passage is to remind you that he is going to take care of death. The last enemy. You you think that China's bad? China's got nothing on death. You can't get away from death. Death. Death, everyone will see it. If the Lord does not return, it's inevitable. And you can freeze your body. You can pray to a genie. Whatever, you can do all that stuff. You can't get away from death. It's coming for you. But one can beat it. And he already did. Jesus. And so he abolishes this. And so all this is going to happen at the end of the time here as we know it. Christ and no one else must reign. And he'll reign and he'll come and he'll conquer all of his enemies. And Psalms 110 says he'll make them his footstool. Psalms 2, I wish I had time to get there. Oh, I'll read Psalms 2. <laughs> his son that he's begotten, he's sent to take care of the nations and to bring them to their knees. But the greatest is death. When you think about the abundance of Christ's enemies, what they all have in common, they have death. And so he takes care of what they have in common, so he takes care of them. Verse 26, the last enemy will be abolished at his death. I think death characterizes enemy more than anything. Christ abolishes the agony of death. He already did that for us. Right, physical death will be taken care of because He's going to resurrect our bodies, Um, and there is no, there is no spiritual death for us to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. We're not, no condemnation, no separation. So immediately we go to be with the Lord. But he, he what does deal with the agony of death, he, he took that away from us. And it ended up in the very first sermon to the church. Peter says in Acts 2.24, but God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death. So he took care of that for us. So we don't fear the agony of death. That means the second death. That means hell. That means judgment for eternity. Christians are free of that. Now, now let's, let's be careful because people always come in, well, Pastor, when you, when you preach that grace and it's just totally free and, and you just receive it, you know, people just say, well, I just believe in Jesus and live any way I want. Well, that's a farce. <laughs> that means you're not saved. We're now slaves of Christ. We were slaves of sin before, right? Are you still a slave to sin? Was Jesus' finished work on the cross not enough to free you from that? Or did you just keep on living in sin and saying, well, grace, grace, you know, live any way I want? You think the Spirit of God is about that? Spirit of God loves Jesus Christ, loves the Word, loves to convict us of sin and bring us to have the joyful repentance of sin and walking with Jesus. That's what the Spirit of God doing. Always spotlighting the Word of God. Always spotlighting the gospel in our life. That's the mark of a Christian. Someone who says, I'm religious and I believe Jesus died for me, I'm going to live any way I want, isn't saved. Or at least very, very immature and deceived, and God will soon deal with them. That's our Lord. So we don't fear death. In fact, we love life. And we love life abundantly because that's what Jesus gave us. So live life abundantly for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 27. And this is getting interesting. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Who's the he there? That's got to be God the Father. Verse beginning at 27. For he, God the Father, has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, quote, it is evident that he, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. There's an exception here. Now, doubtlessly, Paul is referring to the great statement that Jesus made in his resurrection, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. But he is God the Father here. So Paul's clear point in verse 27 is that God the Father has given his son unleavened, sovereign control over all things except him. Jesus does not have authority over the Father. The son has limitless authority, but he would never infringe on the Lord's sovereign control. And so this eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he shares equality in essence in the glory of the Godhead. He would never usurp the father is what he was saying. Now look at verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, when the end has come, Everything's been put under his feet. Then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. (laughs) The wording is, he uses the word subjected, uh, a three times with all different tenses in there. You can look at that if you want. It's a lot of fun. Um, uh, But but he's showing that I, I made everything under you. And when everything's under you, then you put it all and you'll come back underneath me. It's quite a saying. And so Paul's conclusion to this doctrine of the Lord's return is when all things are subjected to him because Christ alone fulfills the role of the second Adam. He serves as God's appointed ruler and reigner of the universe and all things are subject to him. And, and we, see, we see glimpses of this in his earthly ministry. The creation bows to him, right? Storm, quiet, boom. He, he has demons, you know, they, they shake in his presence, even death, right jairus 's daughter, uh, Lazarus and so forth, he has death is subject to him even on this earth when during his ministry. Christ is that sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, and, and every hostile power, including death, has become his footstool when that happens at that time, the Son will submit his entire kingdom to the Father, so you can see what the verse is teaching. Everything's been given to the Son. When the Son completes everything, has everything under His footstool, every aspect of all of the universe and all of time brought underneath Him, at the end, He brings that back and offers it to the Father, and He subjects Himself to the Father. Wow. you worry about getting out of the grave. And you'll be standing there bodily watching this. want to be a Christian? This is what Christianity is. This is the end game. This is where we get to. We get to watch all of this take place. Our God and Savior putting everything under his heels and going, here you go, Father. I did everything you sent me to do. Done. Now, children of God, go enjoy all of eternity. It's chilling, isn't it? I mean, it's just chilling. I, I, I just get amazed. Psalms 2, 7, I will surely tell of the decrees of the Lord. You're my son. did I've ever begotten you. This is what the son does. He eternally comes forth from the father. And all things have been given to him. In one sense, Jesus is subject to the father. In another sense, he's equal. This is who he is. But the eternal son is co-equal with the father. And he willingly submits to him. And he, as he fulfills the father's plan. The son willingly submits to the father. He fulfills that role as redeemer, mediator, ruler, right? He takes care of God's divinely called children, draws them all. Not one of them won't come. And when the son's completed all of that, he delivers the entire kingdom. And why? We'll look at the end of verse 28. So that God may be all in all. Isn't that amazing? You know, you know what the Father and the Son do? The Father po- points all glory to the Son, and the Son points all glory back to the Father. And they just keep doing that. And that's what this is about. So, Father, all that you sent me to do, I've given you. Son, you have a name above all names. That's what they do. And, and you just, we are caught up in this. We're, we're as children, like, going, Wow! <laughs> And I just wanted to be rich on earth. That was pretty stupid. (laughs) I think we'll sing with the redeemed things that we find in scriptures, Romans eleven thirty six for for from him and through him and to him all things, to him be the glory forever. Romans sixteen twenty five through 27, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandments of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. 1 Timothy one seventeen. Uh, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, only God, be honor and glory forever. I think we're going to be saying these things. Jude, verse 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless in great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now, and forever, all things speaks inclusively of everything. That's what our Lord will do, Father. Well, oh, I could teach on this all, so I don't have any breath left. We're captured by your glory, and Lord, there's a promise here for us who are struggling in this life, and that would be all of us at some level. You're going to resurrect our bodies because you resurrected the son. But Lord, even more than that, Lord, we begin to realize that we are just a small part of that worshipful scene. Your son will pling every ruler, every power, every authority, and he'll place them underneath his heels. And he will have all things subject to him. And then he'll turn and give you ultimate glory as you have given him ultimate glory. And there we are, your children, the sons and daughters of the king, all witnessing this inner Trinitarian worship of glorifying one another. And we're just caught up in that. Oh, Lord, let us be captured by you today. Let's not wait for that time. May we be captured by you. May this heal marriages. May this heal friendships. May this, may this help us be good stewards of our jobs, our money, our time. Lord, Lord, we're, we're a part of something so much greater. Lord, let us not get lost in the frivolous things of this world. Forgive us, Lord, for not loving one another correctly. Forgive us for mishandling money. Forgive us for mishandling things that will not go into your kingdom. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to be centered on your son, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.